0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakota, comprising the Chiniki, Bears Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Metis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them.
1: Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architect's House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Shu-Yin Yu and I am a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. This is the second episode in our reading anthology mini-series, Tea House Reads. This series features the creative works generously provided by some of the authors the team has had the pleasure of interviewing. The readers in this episode are Elaine Wang, Isabella Wang, Lydia Kwa, Fred Wah, Wakefield Brewster, Warren Cario, and Amy LeBlanc. We are incredibly excited to share these amazing works with you. For timestamps and biographies, check out the show notes on our website at www.thouse.ca or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Our first reader is Yiling Wang, one of the two conversationalists featured on episode 44. Ling Wang is a writer, poet, Chinese-English translator and editor. As a translator, she has translated fiction, children's literature, poetry, and manhua from and occasionally into Mandarin Chinese. She is the editor and translator of the Chinese poetry anthology The Lantern and the Moon Moths, forthcoming with Invisible Publishing in 2024. Elin has been a finalist for a National Magazine Award and an Aurora Award and has been nominated for a Riesling Award, as well has won the Foster Poetry Prize and been longlisted for various contests such as the CBC Poetry Prize.
2: Hi everyone. Today I'll be reading three poems, two poems that I have published and a poem I've translated from Chinese from my upcoming chapbook, The Lantern and the Night The first poem is called Absence and was dedicated to my grandma. I'm backpacking in Oxford when mama emails to say Waipua has departed and you were the only one missing. This summer I was six, I returned from America after few years away unable to write in Mandarin, not even my name. Waipua demanded I copy characters until I remastered every stroke of every forgotten word. When I last visited, she was penning a memoir, Tattered notebooks she promised to share on her next visit. Waipuo was a survivor who taught girls survival poetry. The night after her death, I muffled my sobs with a polka dot blanket, suffocating tears so they won't startle the lone stranger sleeping on the other side of my hostel door. Next day in Stratford-upon-Avon, past Shakespeare's resting place, I light a candle for Waipua in Holy Trinity Church. Although she wasn't a believer, flames can guide her when the dead return to visit the living. Seven days after her passing, her ghost never appears. Years later, I'm still digging through musty boxes in her bedroom in search of the manuscript she had been writing, pages missing their location buried with ashes. Not a single fragment of her last words. No chance for a goodbye I would never say. The second poem is The Reality of Ghosts. Why do so many Asians believe in ghosts? Two white yokai scholars won't stop gawking at us like we're aliens seen through a telescope. They bait our diseased ancestors to rise up in a parade of their torn robes, already stained by handprints of grey robbers and elegies to be bottled up for a weighing of their heaviness, a test of their misty reality. I must have left my soul in Fondue Ghost City two summers ago when I devoured an icy blue popsicle atop the mountain home of D.E., the underworld. Perhaps is why I see ghosts everywhere now. A Chinese granny in a bookstore has my late white post toothless smiles and stooped shoulders. I trace the spine of secondhand history she leaves behind on the shelves. Count my breath to check whether I'm dreaming. Gap between tiny footnotes is a signpost for the names left out. Wild marginalia peeks out from the edges appealing whiteout. Ascented kin didn't pass on to have the half-keeled scabs ripped open again, paper offerings stolen like plundered heirlooms trapped behind spotless display windows so far away from home. It's much easier to summon spirits than to cast them away. Were evoked, they will return without fanfare, and they will feast. A haunting of the unreal living, a haunting of the faithless. That last poem that I'm going to read is called Night Moth, and it's my translation of a poem by the modernist Chinese poet Dai Wang Su. Night Moth, pulling the halo of candlelight, Night Moth dance in wretched repetition. Those reincarnated spirits from Buddha's kingdom can't recall the insects already dead, the leaves yet to die. Moths are said to be napping kinfolk, soaring across deep mountains, soaring across cloudy trees to soothe us in our misfortunes, pulled by the dead who miss us, pulled by memories returning from the hushed netherworld. But I see myself in the moth, For their vast, silken wings have overtaken my shadow, abandoned it in grave darkness. All for one conviction, not a fantasy, that day I transformed into a phoenix.
1: Our second reader is Isabella Wang, the other of the two conversationalists featured on episode 44. Isabella is the author of the chapbook on Forgetting a Language and her full-length debut, Pebble Swing, was shortlisted for the Dorothy Leversey Poetry Prize. Among other recognitions, she has been shortlisted for ARC's Poem of the Year contest, the Malahat's Review's Far Horizons contest, and Long Poem contest, and was the youngest writer to be shortlisted twice for the New Quarterly's Edna Sabler's Essay Contest. An editor on the Room Collective, she is also a youth mentor with Vancouver Poetry House, web coordinator with Poetry in Canada, and directs her own nonprofit editing and mentorship program 4827 Revised Revision Street.
3: Today, I will be reading some sequences from my poetry manuscript in progress. The book is divided into a series of passages, so I'm going to share the first passage in full. This poem is inspired a lot by the poet Ai Qing, who was a poet during the revolution. His son Ai Weiwei, I think, was in charge of translating a lot of his father's works from Chinese into English. His father Ai Qing was prosecuted for his ideas and his poetry very severely during the revolution. I'm feeling a lot about what he's saying on friendship and nature. I relate a lot. With what Ai Qing is saying on grieving and also friendship. This poem begins with an epigraph Great land that was dead, now under the bright sky is born again. It's from Ai Qing's poem, Reborn Land. Xingzuo, constellations, are ageless suns reborn as stars in the seats of a conversation. They can neither ferry nor pine for a different steridian arrangement, but talking. Their expositions depend on the peoples of lands and revolutions, seeing them, imagining the bright sky, deep futures of their holding illuminations, until they're gone. Mornings. How are their heavens? Is there urgency for us to join the departed still. The skylarks shepherd nimbus dunes over sixth snow, and the blue that dawns before dark silent leaves, its edges with the late wood and memoir of some pianissimo's verse. Is there a thing as crying in havens, a rival forgiving their tin-arthed hearts their ghosting of the whistling stratosphere, forgiving them a night to remember the tender orbiting of another year's late growth and picking up conifers of furs by the side of the body's capering robe? Water misses three weeks, filling in six years of water-leaning's absence. It took time for three movements in an old Chinese proverb to gather connected threads among barrels of leaves, stipule and veins, laddering tight mycelial growth. Raking river constellations, rove over the sweater of the man wheeling his chair. Li Yu-ran and Ai-Qing, Met in the beyondery of furs like France, Ireland, a paper eclipse, miniature warrants, dividing cylinder folds out of two pages and the precipitations of this life. They met before meeting again in heaven because of snug medicine. Friendship fielding the incarcerated under revolutions, tuberculosis, and cornbread equals industrial dust Some can no longer divide themselves into halves. To be the poet's split-leaf propositions. So we bow them with ghost arms into piles. For a whole, for a while, chestnut leaves. Whole with others again. Positions. Erase your end with a soft dinosaur eraser. And tell you in return that the two halves of what you think are fires and floods are just feelings. The weather expressing its newfound poems collaged. Resport of light that remains unmade Flows out of the poets Who fainted on stage in New York Buffalo. Climate scarves and piano keys Drum against the pharynx of those With no language to lose. Form more intense friendships, Love constellating. It makes sense that through extinction's pulse There are in species, atmospheric cyan, and rivers. All want to live these slower climbing weeks of perhaps their last couple months. Only the color blue would not go extinct because it was the last pigment we spent perfecting, and its seeable cellular duplications of grief has become Mia Adderney's novella. The last swordfish in water's nostalgia burns, evolving into a monster survives the rainbow stripes of gasoline riding the roof of her home and catching little fires like three fishermen and their dog plank to the bottom of the boat for sixteen hours as one steered the northwest axis of the rudder and the others slept unsuspecting last poem from the second passage i'll read it's for lee phyllis and Etto, who passed away the same week of november and really rocked a community of poets missing them. Have the poets gone? The sager-than-us elders who rock generations of poets into their worlds but always insisted that they do the following, because we are ready, they say. This world, they've taught us that leading is remembering the ones who ask, are they still thinking about us? We at once gather them and hold them warm this November month, Tell them that night's echo thoughts of how much they're with us. Did we gather enough poems that tell them we still kind of need them? In this world, did we gather a light for them daily? Days when we are cold and not ready to see the places they found and are traveling to be present for.
1: Our third reader is Lydia Kwa, featured on episode 45. Lydia Kwa has published two books of poetry, The Colors of Heroines and Sinuous, as well as four novels, This Place Called Absence, The Walking Boy, Pulse, and Oracle Bone. Her next novel, A Dream Once Waking, will be published by Buckrider Books in Fall 2023. A third book of poetry, From Time to New, will be published by Gordon Hill Press in fall 2024. She won the Earl Burney Poetry Prize in 2018, and her novels have been nominated for several awards, including the Lambda Literary Award for Fiction.
4: I'm going to read an excerpt from Oracle Bone. This is a scene close to the beginning of the novel. At the very beginning of the novel, our protagonist, Ling, is, I think, 14. She and her parents have been ambushed on a barge, and her father was killed by the bandit, Shan Hu. And... Her mother raped, and then she throws herself over the barge and is drowned. Then she's rescued later on in an auction in a small town called Wato by the Nan Lang. After a little bit of time in this Taoist temple called Ta Fa Temple, this is a scene where Ling is summoned by Lang to her study. After the mid-morning meal, sister leads with her usual dao expression led Ling through many corridors and across two inner courtyards until they reached a wing of the temple at the northeastern corner. They saw no one else as they walked down the corridors. Ling watched the nun's shapely body jostle ahead of her, her straw sandals slapping the stone tiles. Sister Li Zi knocked on the door and Chilan's voice responded quickly, enter. Sister Li opened the door for Ling and left immediately. Chilan stood facing what looked like a tiny courtyard. She turned around slowly and asked, How did you sleep? Ling shook her head briskly. I, I didn't sleep well. So I've heard. Seems you have been having nightmares almost every night since you came here. Ling didn't answer but looked keenly at everything in the study. She then craned her neck to look past Chilan. She could see past the lattice doors. Outside the study was a small garden, and beyond that, the wall that demarcated the temple from the outside world. Other than the occasional human voice, Ling heard the braying of an unhappy donkey interrupt the plodding rhythms of horses' hooves and the frequent rattling sounds of cartwheels traveling the cobblestone street. Xilan motioned to Ling to follow her into the garden. They sat there side by side on stone stools. Chilan silently pointed out a caterpillar on the underside of a camellia bush and extended a finger out to it. Soon it crawled onto Chilan's finger. She looked at Ling. You're like this caterpillar, still early in the cycle of transformation. Ling stared at the creature. She didn't like that she was being compared to an ugly worm. She crossed her arms in front of her chest. Don't get it. The Tao Te Ching says To become whole, let yourself be partial. To become straight, let yourself be crooked. The caterpillar crawled up Chilan's hand to her wrist and under her sleeve. Oh, wait, what if Ling's face softened? Chilan took Ling's hand, reach for it underneath my sleeve. Palm up, like this. Slide your hand up. Ling was nervous, but did as she was told. When she was almost at Chilan's elbow, she felt a tickling sensation against her fingers. Then the creature crept on into her palm. She withdrew her hand. It was a miniature orange butterfly with bright blue eyes on its lower wings. How, how could that? The butterfly disappeared into thin air. Where did it go? Look under the camellia leaf. Instead of the butterfly, Ling found the caterpillar. its pliable yellow body moving across the leafy surface. How did you do that? Ling leaned forward, hands holding onto the top of the thighs. I transformed the caterpillar into the butterfly would become, then I changed it back into its original form and moved it to the leaf. These are spells of transformation, crossing time and space and form. Ling was stunned. Never in her life had she ever encountered such magic. You see, the cycle of life is not necessarily straightforward and predictable. But, but this is impossible? Ling nodded, then quickly shook her head. Do you reject what you've just seen? Or would you consider letting go of all those notions you've grown up with? Do you mean what I'd been taught? What Chilan was saying frightened her this magic. Can you bring my parents back to life? That would require an enormous disruption of the patterns already laid down. But is it possible? Yes, but it would mean upsetting the very fabric of destiny, including yours and mine. Chilan's solemn, slightly ominous tone frightened her and kept her from asking more questions. It isn't my place to bring them back. They've crossed into another realm, Ling. Ling felt her throat constrict and tears begin to well in her eyes. Am I meant to stay here? Remain at the temple for a few years and decide later. You can take vows later if you wish to make this your path. Sadness burdened her heart. She looked up at Xilang. The nuns, say this phrase a lot, serve the Tao. What does that mean? It means to act in accordance with what is natural in the cosmos. Was what you just did with the caterpillar, would that be in accordance with, with the Tao? That was of a different form of reality altogether, a sublime one. Yes, it was in accordance with the Tao. The great philosopher Zhuangzi said, south of Chu, there is a caterpillar who counts, which counts 500 years as one spring, and 500 years is one autumn. So there are things that happen outside of natural laws, outside of what most people consider as natural laws. Note the difference. Chilan raised a finger and continued Certain phenomena exist according to other laws. The Tao flows through us, Ling. We are separate from earth and heaven. We choose, we always choose whether to live in accord with the Tao or against it.
1: Our fourth reader is Fred Waugh, featured on episode 47. Fred Waugh was Canada's Parliamentary Poet Laureate from 2011 to 2013 and made an Officer of the Order of Canada in 2013. His award-winning poetry, fiction, and non-fiction include Sentenced to Light, his collaborations with visual artists is "Adore," a series of poems about hybridity, and *Scree*, the collected earlier poems, 1962 to 1991, was published in 2015. His latest writing involved the Columbia River, as does his collaboration with Rita Wong, *Beholden*, a poem as long as the river, published by Talon Books in the fall of 2018. *Hi Muck Amuck*, playing Chinese, an interactive poem, is available online, and an adaptation of his biofiction *Diamond Grill*, called *A Door to Be Kicked*, was released as. A radio play for Kuderne Hoop Radio in 2011. In 2021, "Music at the Heart of Thinking: Improvisations" was published by Talon Books in the fall of 2020.
5: This is the first piece in Ali Ali Free. It's called "One Makes the Difference." To say I don't understand what this means is at least to recognize that this means. The problem is that meaning is not a totality of sameness and predictability. Within each word. Each sentence meaning has slipped a little out of sight and all we have are traces, shadows, still warm ashes. The meaning available from language goes beyond the actual instance of this word or that word. A text is a place where a labyrinth of continually revealing meanings are available, a place that offers more possibility than we can be sure we know, sometimes more than we want to know. It isn't a container, static and apparent, Rather it is a noisy, frequently illegible. Reading into meaning starts with a questioning glance, a seemingly obvious doubloon on a mast. The multiplicity can be read, should be read, even performed. But then again, perhaps meaning is intransitive and unreadable, only meant to be made. No sooner do we name meaning than it dissipates. As a sure thing, it eludes us. It arouses us to attempt an understanding to interpret. But this is usually unsatisfying, since whatever direction we approach from only leads us to suspect there is no one direction. No single meaning is the right one, because no right ones stand still long enough to get caught. But because we do not know does not mean we are lost. Something that's strangely familiar, not quite what we expect, but familiar is present. That quick little gasp in the daydream, a sudden sigh of recognition, a little sock of baby's breath, writing into meaning starts at the white page, nothing but intention. The initial blinding clarity needs to be disrupted before we're tricked into settling for a staged and diluted paradigm of the real the good old familiar, inherited, understandable, unmistakable lucidity of phrase that feels safe and sure. A simple sentence, just like the last time sentence. One makes the difference. Meaning generates and amplifies itself beyond itself, but never forgets. Fragments of its memory and its potency exceed itself with meaning full of desire and can only be found hiding between the words and lines and in a margin large enough for further thought. Music at the heart of thinking go ahead. So that's the opening piece to Alley Alley Home Free. And I'll just read, you know, one or two shorter pieces out of that. Some of the pieces are just addressed to friends or other writers. This is for Bill Sylvester. Yesterday in Chinatown, I bought guy Lan seeds, Chinese broccoli, the green crunchy stalks blanched and ladled over with oyster sauce. Make a fine lunch with rice, maybe some barbecued duck. This morning in my daughter's kitchen in Vancouver, I think of you and the guy lan. The connection isn't my choice. To me, your skin has always showed a flush, a quizzical padure. Will thought forever credit nonsense in the exact measure of our hunger? And what about our fever? A lot of my writing is about food because I grew up on Chinese food and the taste is so important to me. I've always had trouble with the ingenious engine as a suffix of graded wanting love or prayer especially kindergarten stifled kid as a kind of person who might extend racism or even keep me off the block, your kindred jammed the oceans, cognitive shot reborn, got then similar to most of the inborn tutelary spirits everywhere, naive seed of Enyalion or old chip off the old rock, and that's congenital heart buds Gyna gendered and warped up tighter than a Persian rug, how ginger's almost nicer than being born, but that's just taste. This is no mass synapse I'm after. And I've known a while now being lost is as simple as sitting on a log. But the fumbled, jerked, mystique clouds grabbing as the staked mistake or stacked and treasured garbage belongs familiar to a gardened world disturbed as heat. Oh, soft anxiousness to be found again and again, estranged but marvelous, then enlived slope of scree and marmot whistle, so that synchronous foreignicity rages in music. I want to put into a region of the cadence before fallings recognized, you know, where there's that disgraceful ensolment, Mao called swimming. So it jumps all the, over the place. That kind of writing really never stops for me. And I'll just end with this piece that I wrote. The Capilano Review had its 50th anniversary, and they commissioned a bunch of writers to write a piece for their 50th anniversary. This is a three-part poem. It's called By and By. It starts out with uh, some Chinook jargon. Alakina saika wawaweg bimbi, J. Paul says. Soon we will talk again, by and by. Maybe in a little while, but behind this I was younger. I understand now half as much. Then wait, that was long ago. The more we cut through, the less we change. Already my death is my own. Time not yet verbed, understood to be natural. Eventually I will know this elastic forest. So you say, some long time ago, even next week, I will understand the numbers and the location. And I'll go there in the story alongside the river. By and by. If it's indicative, maybe we will go in my boat. Before noon, I was younger. Now I feel strong. Just another older brother. Spelling has never had anything to do with it. Or has it? There are rules which may not be easy to comprehend. Also, keep it simple. Row, row. If it's a canoe, remember all that talk about northern waters. Glass. That time was glass paddle your own north atlantic turbine there was dirt there was earth deep time lurks ocean then was further just a post office surrounded by interior lake salish i thought of it as leaning the theory of rain bends my bardo is post-mortem post another bad trip almost a festival a regular chakamika coming to you or at you good to be home again ain't it but in the by time coming round Two. twilight at the edge of town. Mark Sue says, by and by, we need to search for an interruption. We need to flip to two light between the river and the power line. The chain of recognition is released. Time flies and stays still at the same time, back and forth below the snow line, above the tree line. These are the lines between the poles, blind matter in the sky, landscape at the mouth, Lines that become faces above the water, if you can remember them. A quantum entanglement. Looky, looky, there's the interference, beam pattern between two places at once. Hologrammer effect, not just dual, but four steps: negative, positive, forward, and negative, positive, backward. Or no, yes, no, yes. Waves coincide at the gate of words until you get to the bridge, and the grammar of a long summer day takes over. It never used to be this hard to navigate the edges. So then, so then, so then, electron tongues interfere with themselves. So like play, remember how the noon sun smells? Remember the future? Look both ways for trains and listen to the signals insistent clanging, clanging. The rule is similar. Far means near, undeclared enigmas wander bumpy and flecked betwixtuation's disobedience between two tracks, the hyphen lies. So then ramble if you think we'll be able to and know the line is a cycle too. Creosote fringing the tracks, brink of the river's slope, wait and wait, the density bogs all summer long here and there. Coincident barking, distant barking, a laminated panorama, a circle clanking, walking into town, as if living there was only on one side and we had to be between here and there, the rare seam of graphite shining. What will then? This and that sings the interval we want to hear that sound again, especially that bump. Jack into the meantime, no diff. The rendering of the interval in that photo was soot. It was black daytime neon along the track's residue, and connections to navigate the light we fished through the open doors of the creek could hear the neighborhood but i would fall asleep again at dawn i'd wake to the sound of an incessant siren a reminder that kept reminding when is never the same place again standing in the doorway is such a struggle but a gate would help could be a different marker to the untrained eye a side to side door history had already done that really messy work by and by, I would have to go to work again, but the interval remained the same. So the stage is mass, poetry's mass, augmented, a raw bardo, just passing through a perfect fourth. At the same time, I could hear its regularity. Habit hadn't come to work yet. Over time, the town spills, the edge is garbage, contained by the thingness of place. Memory, he said, is a kind of a hulk, a chain or a balloon wafting over two steel tracks not the caboose but what's after section three two places at once marion penner bancroft says when osprey arrived in april the geese were in the water and shitting all over the beach to be expected the sticks and moss of last year's nest on the piling had been mostly kicked away by the brants using it for their spring hatch but now Getting ready for their own spring breeding, the two raptors were confused about which partially ruined nest to rebuild last year's, or on a nearby piling, the one from two years ago. The notion of an unformed time through which habit can be read backwards relies on the transfiguring capacity of the mind. Something equal also poses the question, what's next? Osprey cannot but double up and bring new sticks and moss to both old nests. But there is a timing problem that then gets codified by intention, two nests at once, an impossible stratagem for birthing and raising a couple of chicks before it's time to leave in September. Biding the time between the pilings and design and our recurring hills of sleep, all of us along the lake shore, the birds and fish, the backhoes, the ferry and the ambulance, Keep in mind the puncta of power lines and telephone poles, the horizon and the moon. This little while is experienced as location and memory, a gift, not a clock. Caught between two nests, osprey is betwixt and in the by and by, not oblivious to the wind talking, tugging, gathering and releasing. In this between place, we can all witness the accumulation of presence, the braiding of seeds, the hours are not equal. the horses, the barn, etc, nor the nests. The two delays the one, the once. Circle over the lake, float slowly, round and round, hover, turning, turning, by and by, by and by, by and by.
1: Our fifth reader is Wakefield Brewster, featured on episode fifty two. Since January 1999, Wakefield Brewster has been known as one of Canada's most popular and prolific performance poets. He is a black man born and raised in Toronto by parents hailing from the island of beautiful Barbados, and he has resided in Calgary since 2006. Since moving to Calgary, he has produced two professional recordings to his credit, Wakefield Brewster, The Lyrical Pitbull in 2007 and East to West in 2008. In 2019, he was appointed as the very first resident poet and spoken word artist of the Grand Theatre House in Calgary, Alberta. In 2001, he joined the League of Canadian Poets and the Board of Directors of the Emergency Artist Relief Society. In 2002, he was appointed Calgary's sixth Poet Laureate.
6: This poem is called, What Does It Look Like? I do something that I like to call professional poetic interpretation. I don't show up at a thing and then just write about it and call it the poem that I wrote. I actually like to speak with the people, hear their personal language, have conversations, make them do homework and say, write me one paragraph, five lines about how you feel about your role or this accomplishment. I use people's quotations. I use their conversations to craft the poem. So what happens is you actually hear snippets and you know you said that, but it sounds like it's my poetry. That makes it feel so personal to people. So this is a professional poetic interpretation of what does an anti-racist Calgary look like in the views of the BIPOC artists community at large. This was done with the cultural investigators, cultural instigators, and it was done a whole day with about a hundred different BIPOC artists and community members listening to them and creating this poem called What Does It Look Like? Every single person, place, and thing has a look from the color of your skin as we cover every book. It looks like respect, for when we reflect, it seems that we do often duly inspect the way of things and how they are and how they've come to be. Those colonized conspiracies keep killing you and me. Once again, we do the math and summon congregation by gathering together and exchanging information, each and every human in all places represented, when given space to show their face and what their lives invented. For it remains a fact I've noticed when life brings its hardest, it begs interpretation, and that's when it needs an artist. By giving girth for works of worth with orbits far and wide presented a way that we may stand afar yet still peer deep inside. Boundaries bricked and built and never broken for that's healthy, which must be shown especially when dealing with the wealthy. Ensure that every angle of your circle of creation is never compromised by cultural appropriation. We truly must hold true and fast to what our roots have sprung or find ourselves on every social ladder lowest rung. A tally more than total parts evolve amalgamated. Refrain from falsifying starts, don't keep us separated. Identifying, all be damned, we're striving for our unity. This palette poured of pigment, we're the global of community. Influence and inference, intending to inject. Purposeful and problematic, politics protect. Subtly and secretly and socially select. By siphoning psychology so certainly suspect. Grapple with the method. What employment, what to use. When we find the only white and right, we must refuse. It's looking like a place where we may conquer any task. It's looking like a place where we may finally wear no mask. It doesn't look broke. It doesn't look dirty. Or cisgender Christian only white male in thirty. The narrative is in a metamorphosis's need, putting heads and hands and hearts of artists truly on the bleed. The way that we respond to life imperative indeed, to nourish every body, mind, and soul with what we feed. We need to shift the shape. We need to mold the maker. We need to smear a smudge on their lily-whitest paper. We must point towards this place of peace so poignant we feel free. To see ourselves in proudly state, O looks like me. That is, what does it look like? I think I will perform one more poem, and I think I will go to a heavy hitter, an old poem, but it seems to be a very poignant poem because coming off of COVID-19, these last two and a half years, people's mental health, well, we now suddenly are aware of it and, believe it's important. And this is a mental awareness poem titled Perceptions. And I wrote this poem in the throes of an episode of Hyperfocus. In those episodes, I needed to be instinctively and unknowingly in very busy environments. So I was living in Toronto at the time. And when my brain got itchy in this kind of way, I called it itchy. I had to be in these busy environments. So where can you always find motion, light, sight and sound? Public transit. So since some of those public transit lines in Toronto run 24 hours a day, I rode and I wrote until the episode was done, which was 18 hours. So every transition that you hear is me on a subway, on a streetcar, on a bus, going between cars, walking through stations. It's the day in front of me. It's not the story of me. It's the story in front of me or the scene or the set or the second. And it's one of those few times where because I'm an alcoholic and an addict, I took this itchy and instead of crashing, I curved it into creativity. And that's how this poem was written. This poem is titled Perceptions. I'm piecing it together. And it resembles a cultural mosaic with the minorities nominating and the majority dominating. Clickety clack, go the tracks cutting on um, black backs for not serving enough flapjacks. Verbal flax will only cause lax. Funds get shunned in stacks. Then they up and raise the tax. Now you can't buy no wax. You gonna have to sell your sacks. Teardrops drop in dollars and cents. We be sitting in the middle of the fence with pockets only full of pence, Hence, we must. Be Make a reconnaissance with our common sense and get all pence if, like, I can see the bigger picture. Here comes the scripture of the lyrical lipster. Slip-cha, then a jujitsu flip Technology blip-cha, technology society blip Like life was tried, tested, and tenuously true. Switch, switch, switching the mama's in the kitchen. Let like my brother said she'd be pitching a connection about the situation that needed stitching. But forever, however, she never did lift the lever on the encryption. So eclectic and enigmatic, though the bowl of her soul was not Emphatic, She went purely automatic, and all we got from mama was static, static, lopping off limbs to secure bladed winds. I hear the false and the falsities of a humdrum. I once did stun, and then I stunk. The sweater of my creativity shrunk. I am not who's quick but dead like a cup of liquid lead. Go Mercury! A strong goblet of silver in my throat made a sliver. So bring me to to the giver, and I'll teach him how to share. I'll rip out all his hair and let it float to the earth like celestial webs. So now the tide ebbs, and somewhere in the middle, I think I'm swollen. I don't feel whole, but I think I have a hole in my my,
5: my, my, my
6: third inner eye now that the body is incomplete a spiritual cyclops may a blinded soul run rampant through your rivers of repose and your pastures of peace Goliath will plague pillars like Samson smashing Moses and God with tablet rehashing two sins in Joshua reaps the wind so I'm with Joshi. he's gonna crumble the walls of Jericho coming through with ill horn cornucopia of ill flow melody still blow hellenes bad stone masons poor architects only you will be disappointed at the edifice erected at the whip poor workmanship that couldn't be detected I can feel the changes coming on not like menopause but men must pause and consider applying some feminine laws as society falls and claws at its throat emergency tracheostomy for the masses and still we find ways to smoke ourselves to death choke ourselves of breath till there's almost nothing left just like grains of crystal meth fragile and fragmented agile and demented pseudo stratified separated and cemented like plasma and hemoglobin a dim watt light that could still put a strobe in, anachronistic fashion, anarchistic passion, I am a thief. Then the liar, ah, steal truth And run upon rooftops so tin Inside my head resides a din With a clip and a clap and a pace That won't stop, I ain't being pursued Demons are upon me like flies on eyes The UN cries but blatantly denies Its contradictory position When cash gets stashed in the name of a mission Impossible the every human belly on the swelly be Cause cats, they be starving like Marvin They're dying in the heat of a city summer swelter They're sticking to the floors of a frozen bus shelter Live people by day But by night, who knows The homeless death toll It lives in breathing crows And the body like cancer And the mind like neuromancer Pummeling psyches Pounding cerebellums Looking for the button to initiate research start pulling personified pixels apart my heart my heart my goddamn heart i am frozen stuck in the internet. i have been molested by the mechanical hands of a robotic jack frost i didn't have no backup some of files got lost shuffle through random access this defragmenter file edit view insert format tools table window help
1: our sixth reader is Warren Cario, featured on episode 56. Warren Cario was born in Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan, into a family of Metis and European heritage. Though he has lived away from Meadow Lake for many years, his art and academic work maintains a focus on the cultural and environmental questions that have preoccupied the people of his homeland. His books, films, photography, and scholarly research explore themes of community, environment, orality, and belonging in the Canadian West, with particular focus on the relationship between Indigenous stories and the land. Warren Kariu is a professor in the Department of English, Theatre, Film, and Media at the University of Manitoba.
7: I'm going to read some poems that are pretty new and that are reflecting on the tar sands and its larger implications, but also very much on my own relationship with the bitumen that I use in my petrography. Two pieces that are companion pieces. The first one is called Tar Benediction. Praise fossils, may they rest in place forever. Praise pedestrians. Praise lavender and its kin, the bees. Praise the tar, it clings with love to my hands. Praise water protectors. Praise the living drum inside our chests. Praise medicine gatherers. Praise the Athabasca, may it flow as long as grass grows. Praise the seeps where the tar offers itself. Praise the poor. Praise the outliers, the off-grid, the eccentrics. Praise the sweet grass that grows above pipelines. Praise glaciers. Praise the polluted, the tainted, the mutated. Praise the stones who mimic us. Praise bodies on the line. Praise the elders. Praise each breath. Praise always to the sun. Praise the fireflies, the mayflies, the stoneflies. Praise the young. Praise the lens and its river of light. Praise our tongues. Praise the thin slip of air we indwell. Praise zooplankton. Praise those who listen to rocks. Praise all my relations. Praise the extinct. Praise the worriers, the carers, the fighters. Praise all we endanger. Praise mirrors. So that first one was called Tar Benediction. And this second one, the companion piece, is called Tar Curse. Lost ceremonies, trapline barricades, endocrine futurity, jet stream wandering carcinoma bloom mercury muskrats acid rain bile duct anomaly empty money spongy pickerel words gone missing fire weather untouchable blueberries overburden full-bellied hunger cellular legacies entangled mallards empty bloom full-bellied mercury Entangled futurity, trapline carcinoma, wandering legacies, word barricades, endocrine burden, lost mallards, cellular ceremonies, acid blueberries, jet stream hunger, pickerel anomaly, fire money, spongy bile duct, over weather, untouchable rain, muskrats gone missing. Entangled words, cellular fire, carcinoma ceremonies, acid bloom, untouchable money, muskrat hunger, lost futurity, trapline burden, full bellied anomaly, pickerel gone missing, barricade weather, spongy blueberries, over legacies, bile duct jet stream mercury wandering empty mallards endocrine rain so as we yeah we were talking about the the doubleness of the tar and those two pieces reflect that I'm just going to read another excerpt from a longer poem that is called that uh, kalamazoo the turtle has new veins pumping north to south west to east west to further west forged in long surgeries Earth split bare, steel tubes laid in furrows too deep for seeds. Then the burial. Sutured by backhoe and packer, soil mounded up to allow for settling. As the grasses grow back, the humans forget. Still the dark fluids course there, mile after mile, under meadows and fields, backyards, parking lots, forests, lakes, beneath the streams her older arteries. If you place your palm on the still ground, maybe you can feel it, the throb of something out of place, moving to yet another place, cyborg pulse out of time with the rest. If the tar wants anything, it's to stay stuck, tied up in roots, bound to soil and sand, clinging to dust motes, insect corpses, leaves microbeads of water and yes even to itself tightest hug of earthy self-love but now it moves without wanting to plied with diluents its grip slackens it becomes the thing that flows forced by impellers pump stations pressure valves through tunnels smooth as shotgun barrels it slides at the pace of a slow walk Today, an old man walks along with it, accompanying its eastward journey, following the scent of sweetgrass that grows there in the right-of-way, where the earth was pressed back together. It began to grow soon after the machinery left, and for years the old man has come here, early August mornings, tobacco twist in his pocket, to harvest medicine.
1: Our final reader is Amy LeBlanc who was featured on episode 40. Amy LeBlanc is a PhD student in English and Creative Writing at the University of Calgary. Amy's debut poetry collection, I Know Something You Don't Know, was long-listed for the 2021 Relit Award and selected as a finalist for the Stephen G. Stephenson Award for Poetry. Her novella, Unlocking, was a finalist for the Trade Fiction Book of the Year through the Book Publishers Association of Alberta. Amy's most recent book, Homebodies, is a collection of interconnected Gothic short stories. Her next poetry collection, I Used to Live Here, is forthcoming with Gordon Hill Press in 2025. Amy's work has appeared or is forthcoming in The Fiddlehead, Room, Arc, Canadian Literature, and the Literary Review of Canada, among others. Amy is a recipient of the 2020 Lieutenant Governor of Alberta Emerging Artist Award and a Canadian Graduate Scholarship Doctoral Award for her research into fictional representations of chronic illness in Gothic spaces. Amy is a 2022 Killian Laureate and a recipient of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee Medal.
8: I'm going to be reading the prologue and the first chapter of Unlocking. Three can keep a secret if two of them are dead. Who was it that said that? I suppose it doesn't matter since the one who said it is most likely the first to go. Here's what I've always said, a goldfish will eventually grow to fit the sides of its bowl and the same is true of secrets. In a confined space, a secret will expand to be as large as the space itself. When the boundaries of the space change, so do the dimensions of the secret. It's basic. When a secret is patiently fed, it begins to grow. An impatient gardener will water too much, fertilize at the wrong time, and pluck their turnips from the soil when they could have grown with a little patience, twice as bulbous. In Snowton, Alberta, a secret that began as small as a seed was fed until it flourished like a crocus in spring. That isn't to say there was a shortage of secrets before the latest one. Alexander Davies' parents locked him in a tool shed when he wet the bed as a child. Once, while they were planning a bingo fundraiser for repairs to the town library, Alexander was in the shed for 46 hours. Mr. Davy was practicing how he might call bingo numbers. 17, dancing queen, 61, baker's bun, 85, staying alive, while Alexander pulled his last lint-covered piece of gum from his pants pocket to moisten his mouth. I was with Mr. Davy, Alexander's father, when he passed away years after the incident in the shed. He told me that he had only ever wanted to make the boy strong, but I never understood what he meant by that. A clematis cannot grow without a trellis to lean on for support. Mr. Davy himself had been bullied as a child and he wanted something different for Alexander, who was not present when his father died. He was dealing cards at a casino in Vancouver at the time. Here's another secret. As teenagers, Ben Higgins, Mark Dahl, and Edward Till spray painted indigo vents as a slut on the outside wall of the bowling alley where indigo used to work to support her mother's drug habit. I only found out because indigo came to my house for a handful of the polypore pieces I nurtured in my backyard. Generally speaking, most polypores are harmless, but she wanted polypores of the genus Hapolopolis, a species that can cause kidney failure, which leads to fluid retention, confusion, weakness, coma, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Indigo thought she might slip some into their soft drinks the next time they came to the bowling alley. I gave it to her, but as far as I know, she never went through with it. A part of me wishes she had. It would have made for a more interesting year. Even now, Wanda Albin talks in her sleep and tells her husband that she wants a divorce, but then wakes up with no recollection of having said anything of the sort. Her husband came to me and asked if any of my plants could help her sleep more soundly. It seems that being dumped night after night was beginning to take its toll. I gave him some valerian root to boil with chamomile, and suggested he add a tablespoon of honey for sweetness. He never returned for more, so I assume the mixture worked. If it didn't, he may have finally learned how to cope with rejection. Angela Cullen stole $3,000 from the Fund for Flood Relief in 2013. The town council had stapled a milk jug to the telephone pole outside the library to collect donations. Angela was in charge of emptying the jug each night and tallying the donations, but she only wrote down half of the actual amount. The rest went into empty peanut butter jars in her basement. I can't find any reason for that theft other than blatant greed, and I certainly don't blame her for that. I keep all of these secrets like seedlings in my hands. The leaves on my poplar tree have begun turning inside out, and a creeping bellflower has spread itself into the sidewalk cracks in front of my house. The rabbits munch on the blooms and leaves. Regardless, the flower persists and grows. If you try to pluck a creeping bellflower from the earth, you will discover that its roots travel under lawns and fences and even beneath concrete, like a nervous system. Invasive and stubborn, these plants thrive in all conditions. I am alone most of the time and I speak to my plants to help them grow. Whoever said that classical music helps plants germinate and ripen has never spoken to me. My vines wither if I play Mozart, but twist and grasp and climb when I speak to them. I tell them secrets, which they absorb like nutrients from the soil. The earth of this town is ripe with whispers and furtive conversations. The key to understanding is to soak everything in like a bearded iris and to try not to let the secrets turn to rot. I have been skirting around the periphery of Louise Till's secret for some time. I have seen her taking notes as secretary in town council meetings, I see how she separates herself from what she writes. But you don't take on a role like that, unless you're at least a little curious about the lives of others. By watching Lou, I have learned that the part of a key that enters a lock is called the blade. What we hold as we slide a key into a lock is the bow. The shoulder is what keeps the key from getting swallowed in the jaws of a lock. The deepest part of a key's cut is called the valley. The reason my key works at my house and yours does not is that they have different codes, individual delineations that dictate what a key can be used for. A key's valley shoulder code and other features make up the small piece of metal we use for security, a sense of security anyway. I have been observant and patient as any good gardener should be, but I can sense that the contours of Louise's secret are about to change. Chapter one. Lou brushed snow from the sides of sloping headstones and jangled the keys on her chain. She knew that the earth was always shifting, tectonic plates were moving, earthquakes, hurricanes, floods, and volcanoes erupted and shook and submerged. On a level that Lou could witness, the cemetery had gradually begun to slope toward the east. The ground had only begun to shift visibly in recent years, but the headstones had an unmistakable tilt to the left which meant they had been nudging Athwart for some time, and most had begun to bump sides with their neighbors. As she looked at her parents' headstones, their carved edges barely touching, she thought that perhaps this is how tectonics persist, one infinitesimally small shift in the earth and everything tilts out of balance. She took two minutes and counted the keys in her hands, 42, she counted them again, 42, which meant that she had 166 locked safely away in the store. In her whole collection, she had 12 patterned keys, 99 identical Vicer keys, Schlag keys of various vintages, three latch keys, and a number of generic keys that looked almost identical. To the untrained eye, the minute variances between keys are indistinguishable, but Lou was aware of the unique tactility of each and its corresponding house in town. She had been collecting others' keys for the past year, and had surprised herself with her seamless ability to lie and deceive in order to attain them. She'd imagined fibsters and spinners of yarns as men with ascots and spats, or women in fake fur coats with cigarette holders in their gloved hands. She never questioned that her perception of liars seemed to be rooted in 1920s imagery, and she never imagined she, of all people, would keep a secret of this magnitude and lie about it so adroitly. After her father's death, she'd inherited his hardware store. When she worked there as a girl, her father used to smooth down her hair to place padded earmuffs on her head before he turned on the key cutter. He guided her hands through the cuts and notches as if metal were no more difficult to cut than butter. Her mother compared the sound of the key cutter to a cat being castrated, but Lou never disliked the sound. She associated it with the controlled pressure of her fingertips against the wing nuts and thumb turns and the smell of her father's cologne. Her favorite part came after the key was cut and she could hold its edges against the burring wheel to smooth any roughness away. This was when she felt most involved in the process. She didn't have a machine making cuts for her. She could hold the key against the wheel and feel its harshness filed away bit by bit. If she went too far, she'd need to cut the key again. She found it was a balance of firmness and caution, but now she felt incautious. She hadn't planned to keep anyone's keys, and she'd been blindsided by her own compulsion to do just that. After she inherited the store, her first customer was Frank Blake. He had a new partner and needed Lou to cut a copy of his house key. Lou told him to come back in 30 minutes as she was finishing another project. She guaranteed the new key would be ready upon his return. Lou didn't have a plan or even an inkling of what she might do with Frank's key. She just needed to keep it and to keep it secret. When he came back, he picked up his keys, paid, and left with never any reason to suspect that she had buried a second copy in the storeroom filing cabinet beneath ancient bank statements. Her mother had kept each paper bank statement over the years. She refused to move to online delivery because she felt that they might be useful someday. In hindsight, Lou could see that her mother was preparing her to take over the store, gathering snippets of information that Lou might need when she was on her own. In this way, Lou thought of her mother like a magpie. She gathered what was needed, kept it safe, and made a home out of a nest filled with string and sawdust. In the cemetery, she tightened her scarf around her throat and breathed in the smell of her well-worn clothing as the wind rolled through town and in between listing headstones. The scarf had been her mother's, but it hadn't smelled like her for a long time. She often thought of her parents and what they might say if they could see her, her pockets full of other people's keys. Lou closed her eyes and heard a whisper, but was fairly certain that she had been the one to speak. Sometimes she was taken off guard by the sound of her own voice. There were days when she didn't speak to anyone until a customer came into the store. She was usually surprised by the clarity of her voice. The one she heard in her head was gravelly, more like her mother's. Nonetheless, she imagined that the wind carried her mother's voice towards her. I've got the key to my castle in the air, but whether I can unlock the door remains to be seen. She liked to remind herself that the cemetery would be here, braced against the wind far longer than she would. These dusty headstones weren't going anywhere anytime soon. Lou walked the perimeter of the cemetery twice each morning. Between 8 and 8.30, a group of men, mummified from head to toe in spandex and elastic, ran around its perimeter. Hi, Lou. Morning. Hey, hi. Hi, Lou. Skip to my Lou. How are you doing, Lou? They each tossed a breathless greeting towards her as they flew past, pumping their arms in time with their legs, fleece headbands covering their ears against the winter chill. The last greeting came from Bart Hastings, a local writer and the most recent addition to the group, who told her that he'd taken up running to keep his creativity focused and consistent and to counteract the sedentary nature of his work. She didn't know him well, she had cut keys for him only once. But she knew he wrote mystery novels that occasionally bore a resemblance to events and people in town. No one took issue with this. They all expected that someday he might be the town's claim to fame. Snowton couldn't compete with the Torrington Gopher Hole Museum, where tourists could see stuffed gophers and wedding dresses or gopher facsimiles of early Alberta settlers. Lou had never understood the appeal of the gopher museum, but she'd spent many afternoons there with her children and her husband. She'd see the runners, she'd named them the chums, at varying times of the day and in different locations. Sometimes they were jogging, other times they did long, slow variations on lunges across fields. Or squats for their backsides almost touched the snowy earth, but they were in a constant state of motion. She often wondered if they ever stopped to eat or drink a cup of coffee together. Her father had never been a runner, but he used to step outside the hardware store to chat when they ran by. He'd stand still and the chums would run in place and her father seemed to belong with them somehow he'd invite them into the store for coffee which they politely refused and they'd go on their way Lou still kept the pot of coffee on and drank four to five cups of high test each day but her eyes twitched only occasionally and her heart fluttered with nerves whether she was caffeinated or not she would try to kick the habit soon it was just a matter of how soon she stepped between the cremation urn garden and the in-ground burial plots pluck a few dandelions that grew around headstones, and it somehow survived the first round of winter, even though the odds were stacked against them. Weeds, she thought, were always poking through the soil. Nothing could destroy them. She remembered reading that a woman's morning clothes used to be called widow's weeds. She wasn't a widow, but she didn't know what to call herself. Adult orphan, remainder, undone. She wiped off mud that caked across familiar names. The cemetery housed only 150 plots, many of the people from town who died were buried a short drive away in Calgary because their children and grandchildren had left town years before. But everyone who had ever mattered to Lou was buried here. Her grandparents, her aunts and uncles, her old friends, her first baby, and finally her parents buried in a row overlooking the stream and surrounded by evergreens. The slant of the cemetery ground somehow made the spot more inviting. There was a wrought iron fence that surrounded the graveyard and one of the latches on the gate had been broken for as long as Lou could remember. There was no shortage of townsfolk who could have fixed it, but it had become a fixture of the Snowton Cemetery's mythology. No one knew where the stories began, but according to legend, the broken latch allowed the spirits of the Snowton Cemetery to wander the town at night, peeking into their old houses, checking up on their loved ones. For the younger citizens, this legend worked to keep them out of the cemetery after dark for fear of encountering the undead. For the older citizens, it gave them something akin to equanimity. The cemetery was a silent space, but it was a place Lou felt she could belong to, because it was imperfect. She could come to the cemetery with unwashed hair, holes in her socks, and a cluttered mind. She'd wanted to bring the twins with her to visit their grandparents' graves, but her children were uneasy about cemeteries. Even at 16, they hadn't outgrown the tendency to believe that everything about death was frightening. When their cat had died with fluid in his lungs, after drinking water from beneath their front step, her children hadn't wanted to touch him. Lou thought he looked like he was sleeping. She was the one that wrapped him in a pillowcase, placed him in a shoebox, and buried him in the backyard beneath the poplar tree. She didn't pressure her children to go to the cemetery because as a child, she'd been anxious in the same way. She remained so until her grandmother's funeral, when her mother explained that cemeteries weren't places of death so much as they were places of rest. After that conversation, Lou began visiting the graves of relatives who had died before she was born. She found herself in a daily routine where she placed a hand on top of each tombstone, counted to three before moving to the next. Counting quieted her mind and the palpability of the headstones gave her something concrete to focus on. The cemetery was one of the few places where she could shut off her mind for minutes at a time. She counted the headstones and the evergreens that surrounded her, She picked pine cones off the path and placed them beneath the trees. She'd arrive at her parents' graves with plucked dandelions in her gloved hands, but often bouquets of dahlias and forget-me-nots had already been laid on the grass. She knew that her parents had been well-loved and that should have made the grief easier to bear, but somehow it added to sorrow's desolation. She was never sure why, but her grief took the shape of a yellow clay pot that sat in her body just behind her stomach. When grief overflowed, it poured black over the edges of the pot. When it subsided for moments, the clay pot emptied and she could see yellow again. When she thought about community grief, the pot overflowed more quickly than she could imagine, an outpouring. On this particular morning, she sat down between the headstones and felt the pressure of the stones touch her shoulder blades on both sides. Lou ran her right thumb and middle finger around the space where her wedding ring used to be. She had told Edward that the ring was missing. She said it must have slipped off when she was out, since the ring was too large for her shrinking figure. She had lost weight in the last year, but Louise knew exactly where the wedding ring was, and she had no intention of retrieving it. Edward came home one day to find Lou on her knees in the garden. She'd been planting lavender, rosemary, dill, and chives, and she'd removed her gardening gloves to work on a particularly tough root with her fingernails. When she finished gardening, she discovered that her ring was neither on her finger nor in the glove she decided to leave it in the dirt. She read a newspaper article about a woman whose wedding ring had been lost in her garden. She found the ring 13 years later when she harvested her new crop of vegetables and found the ring in the center of a misshapen carrot. The carrot had grown out from the ring so that it looked like a cinched waste. This woman had left her husband years before the ring was found. Seated in the grass, Lou brushed cat hair from the edges of her sleeves and began to speak. Hi mom, hi dad. She always paused to give time for a response. No, I'm doing well, really I am. The kids are healthy, Edward is healthy. Molly's decided that she wants to be an engineer, so we're researching universities for her. Stewart still isn't sure what he wants to do, but he'll get there eventually. Lou brushed her hair away from her eyes. The store is fine, dad. Remember the router you wanted that was on back order? It finally arrived so I can finish the edging on that hobby horse. Yes, I will, promise. She traced the edge of his headstone. All right, I'll see you both tomorrow. Lou stood up too fast and was struck with sudden lightheadedness. She'd never run out of words to say so quickly and she hadn't even said what she'd intended to. She knew they couldn't hear her, but she needed to get certain words out of her head and into the air and she'd failed to say them. Everyone else knew that she and Edward were separating, but her parents hadn't been told. It reminded her of folklore she'd heard about telling the bees. It was a custom that bees should be informed of important events like births, deaths, general comings and goings, funerals, weddings. If the bees weren't told, they would leave the hive and the honey would dry up. The bees were worthy of respect, and that respect came in the form of stories. Her parents weren't going anywhere, she knew that, but they still deserved to be told about important events, especially related to their own daughter. She hesitated and turned to go, but then returned and placed a hand on her father's headstone. Tracing her fingers along the inscription from Dickens, a very little key will open a heavy door. Lou scraped the dirt away from the headstone with her bitten and cracked fingernails and pushed onwards.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tea House Reads. I'm Xu Yu and you're listening to Tea House Talks. Tea House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary where our offices are housed. We also appreciate the guidance of Mark Stucco at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Micah Jacobson, Rebecca Jeline, Mahmoud Ababneh, Ryan Stern, Shuyen Yu, Mark Lynch, Shazia Hafiz Ramji, Benjamin Gon, and Amy LeBlanc. Our music is Monarch of the Streets, by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House including symposia, panels and readings, check out our website at www.teahouse.ca. That's www.t e.ca. If you would like to be in touch, send us an email at y y c at gmail.com. That's T-I-A-H-O-U-S-E-Y-Y-C at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.